Good morning. Uh, welcome to the second panel for uh, the day, and uh, we're going to shift to more of a, a private law focus at this point. And uh, the uh, question before us is posed as, uh, is, the, uh, is law and economics anti-democratic? And uh, just to set the stage for that question, I think that it's drawing on a certain strand of law and economics that takes a normative view of the value of efficiency and maybe is occasionally skeptical of legislative incursions into the genius of the common law. Uh, we have three eminent scholars well qualified to uh, tackle this question. Uh, our own uh, Brian Simpson, uh, well known as a historian of the common law and other topics. Uh, and then he's going to be joined by uh, Bob Ellickson and Henry Smith, uh, both of Yale, uh, well-known uh, law and economics scholars as well. So the structure that we have uh, agreed upon is that uh, we're going to go, uh, I think it's in reverse order of age. Is that what we've selected? <laughs> yeah. So uh, Professor Simpson will start uh, and uh, then uh, Bob and Henry will will follow up. And then I'm going to save a little time for the uh, panelists to uh, respond to each other and, and maybe throw things at each other. I don't know. And then we will uh, open the uh, conversation up uh, and same rules as last time. If you'd like to pose a question to the panelists, we have microphones set up on either side here, and you are encouraged to uh, make your question uh, succinct. Brian. Okay. Um, well, speculation on the nature and proper form of judicial decision has been going on for a very long time. Uh, let's go back to 1345. There was a slack day in the Court of Common Pleas, and the lawyers started arguing about how judges should decide cases. And one of them said, um, the counsel said, well, you've got to follow the traditions of the court because otherwise people won't know what the law is. And the second judge said, oh, no problem about that. Law is the will of the justices. And the third judge was very shocked by that. And he said, certainly not. Law is reason. And they've been arguing about it ever since. Um, <laughs> and let me take you forward to the Federalist. Uh, number 78, the courts must declare the sense of the law, and if they should be disposed to exercise will instead of judgment, the consequences will be the substitution of their pleasure uh, to that of the legislative body. So that's linking anxieties about the legitimacy of judicial decision to the notion of democratic societies in which the people should be on top and decide what the law should be. Um, Back in 1345, they weren't worried about that because democracy hadn't really been invented yet. Um, and other people worried about the legitimacy of judicial decisions for other reasons. Jeremy Bentham was objected to them because of the arbitrary nature of decisions. He said, the common law is like hitting a dog to teach it how to behave well. You wait till it does something wrong and then you hit it. Um, and that's the way the common law works. So... These anxieties have gone on for a very long time. Um, 
In relatively modern times, there have been two theories associated with the law economics movement which have fed into this sort of discussion. And I'm going to say them in a very, very simple and simplistic way. One is an explanatory theory. That says that the common law has in fact evolved and been driven by the pursuit of economic efficiency. Uh, there's inefficient rules are rather like giraffes with short necks on the Serengeti Plains. They don't last long. Um, and so it's, it's the way it, is, it evolves. It's a sort of determinist um, explanatory theory. Um, you know, you can easily mock this. You know, you say to yourself, you know, what about the old rule in Shelley's case? How efficient was that? still around in Arkansas, so they say. So, it's quite easy to mock this theory. Um, but there we are. The other version is that common law decisions ought to be driven by respect for the value of economic efficiency. Um, that can take a strong form in which people argue that should be the only value or weaker forms of the theory say, no, it's an important value that judges should pursue in deciding cases, but not the only value. Um, why are the problems about this in democratic societies? Well, the first is, when did the people say this, or say that this was what they wanted? Um, is there a law out there passed by a legislature saying, Judges, get on and pursue economic efficiency. Well, there's no such law. So when were the people asked? Um, or how do you give this idea democratic legitimacy? Um, second problem is most people think that in democratic societies a variety of different values are pursued of which only one is the pursuit of economic efficiency. I think it would be pretty stupid to argue that this should never be a factor. Indeed, it would be quite easy, I'm not going to do it today, to produce cases back in the 17th century in England, even earlier, in which it's quite explicit that a court decision is to some degree driven by notions of maximizing wealth. They don't use the language you use today because they hadn't read Adam Smith or anybody, but um, the idea is lurking about there. So that's the second sort of problem about the strong version of this sort of theory. The third problem, I think, is this. If the explanatory theory is correct in its strong form, then common law decision is driven by economic efficiency, whether we like it or not. It's just a fact about the world. It's no point asking the people whether they want this. It just happens. Um, it's as silly as saying to the giraffes in Serengeti, are you in favour of Darwin or aren't you? It would be a fatuous question to ask a giraffe. Um, and so if you think that this is what happens in some sense inevitably, then there's no question of democratic legitimation any, any more than you require uh, democratic legitimation for Einstein or whatever. Um, now, I think in earlier times, if people, insofar as people thought about this at all, and you must realise that most judges 
and lawyers at most times in legal history are sublimely uninterested in discussing what is the nature of judicial decision. They just don't worry their little heads with it. Um, the first uh, person in America who wrote a book which was explicitly directed to this in a full sort of way, I suppose, was Cardozo. Most judges don't bother. But I suppose if they did bother about it, what they might say is something like this, that judges ought in judicial decision to respect the peculiar legal conventions as to how you justify propositions as to what should be done. A legal convention might be that you have to respect the decisions of the Supreme Court because they are binding on you. That's a specifically legal um, reason. Um, they might also have said that insofar as respecting legal authorities, juristic opinion, earlier case law, views of text writers and so forth, doesn't seem to point to a clear solution, then what judges should do was pay attention to their unsophisticated, if you like, common sense awareness of the sorts of values that are um, accepted in their society. For example, if you have a very difficult case and the judge said, um, well, I read all the books and read the cases and it sort of goes both ways. So what I'm going to do is toss a coin. Now, toying Coin tossing is not in our society regarded as an appropriate way of deciding cases in our courts. It's regarded as a perfectly good way of deciding who plays first in the game. But it's just not part of the conventions. However sensible it might be to save a lot of time by doing that, it's just not an accepted convention. Um, finally, I find that the more extreme versions of either the explanatory theory or the normative theory have the disagreeable characteristics of theories where one size fits all. Um, that, I think, is not the sort of criticism that can be made in the more sophisticated arguments about the role of economic efficiency in judicial decisions. Thank you, Brian. Next up will be Bob Ellickson, and he's, he has to stand to talk. He's like me. Um, as Adam indicated, uh, this is the private law panel. Um, uh, all the other panels are public law panels. Uh, those of us who are involved in private law as uh, we three are, more than most of the other speakers, actually don't regard this as an inferior form of law. Um, we actually think that human interactions, I don't know if I can speak for all of us here, uh, uh, that the basic forms of human interaction uh, turn more on the foundational rules of private law than on public law, that you honor another's bodily integrity, that you keep your promises, that you honor the work product of other people and whatever. These are much more foundational and important in the end than uh, the public law topics to which many conferences uh, uh, eventually uh, uh, devote too much time. Um, uh, so anyway, that is our subject matter to fit in this conference, uh, to fit in our panel with, uh, with the rest of them. Uh, we are given a very interesting phrase to start with. Uh, Adam mentioned is law and economics anti-democratic. I want to use the first phrase because I was deeply puzzled by it called uh, the people's common law. Um, 
This has, uh, to my mind, sort of a Stalinist flavor to it. Um, uh, and not, not the uh, sort of uh, phrase you would expect at a Federalist Society conference. Uh, one thinks of the People's Republic of Korea, one of the outstanding democratic institutions uh, in the world. Um, and so, uh, so what is going on here? Uh, so let me try to give you my understanding of what perhaps was the impulse behind uh, this phrase, the people's uh, common law, and indicate uh, uh, why I, in fact, don't reject this understanding of it. There may be others that people in the room, maybe my co-panelists can offer, uh, can offer uh, to the group. Um, uh, the... Um, uh, 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 the understanding, which is not uh, po uh, possible, I think, here, is that actually the people create the common law. A uh, common law is created by judges. If you ask most Americans what the common law is, as opposed to civil law, they would, uh, they would just be puzzled by the question. They have no idea how to answer it. Uh, and they are not exposed to the basic uh, rules of the common law. Uh, when you came to law school, most of you read cases such as Hadley against Baxendale and Paul's graph and Pearson against Post and whatever, and this was brand new for you. Uh, uh, most people, they occasionally read paragraphs out of Supreme Court decisions on public law issues. They have no clue about uh, the common law. So how can the common law then be the people's uh, law? So I think the impulse uh, behind the, uh, this, this phrase was that properly developed, uh, the common law should reflect the practices uh, traditions and customs of the people, and that's the legitimacy, the le legitimate way for the common law to evolve and to bring in uh, extraneous uh, uh, factors of any sort uh, would be to corrupt the uh, common law. So a common law, the phrase we often use in law is custom. Uh, in fact, uh, the common law does look to custom uh, in, in, in all of its uh, in all of its areas, uh, but only looks to custom partially. And I will now argue that in fact that is the correct approach for the law to take. That would be a great mistake for the law to slavishly uh, follow custom, uh, that if the meaning of the people's common law is the common law has to follow custom, this is both descriptively false and normatively a very, very uh, bad idea. I think it is a conception that very much appeals to people who join the Federalist Society because the Federalist Society tends to consist of people who are either kind of Burkean traditionalists or libertarians. And if you are a Burkean uh, traditionalist, uh, uh, basically the people's tradition should be incorporated into the law, so you kind of like that. And if you're a libertarian, uh, you, I think, you usually I think you're kind of for small government, and you might have the instinct that a following tradition would lead to smaller government than otherwise, so I can understand the appeal of this notion. Uh, but let me indicate uh, an, uh, 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 why, uh, in fact, the common law does not just follow custom. I say this as someone, and probably the reason I was invited to participate in this panel is compared to most law professors, I am a huge fan of custom. I am a huge fan of leaving private ordering, of ordering to um, civil society as opposed to shifting it to the state and to rely on custom and norms and so forth is a way, uh, a way of doing that. But here, very briefly, are three ways in which custom can fail um, and uh, in which case we don't want the people through their customs to dominate, uh, create the common law. One is, uh, just to remind you how much you've learned in law school, uh, custom may lag, uh, to use a famous phrase from the T.J. Hooper opinion by a learned 
hand, uh, the notion here is that a, a social practice may get caught up at, with, uh, with inertia or at a suboptimal equilibrium to talk in a fancier way, and that law sometimes usually can jog uh, practice, uh, can jog uh, the rules uh, from that uh, 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 suboptimal equilibrium where it is stuck. Um, a second reason is uh, uh, one that Henry Smith, the next speaker, has de is developing in an article which is that custom is very vague. So if you are invited to a social event, you often, in fact, don't know how to dress, to take a, a, typical, uh, a typical example. You are puzzled by what the customs should dictate for you. And an advantage of law in many situations is it's um, clearer. And the fancy way to talk about this these days, of course, is to say the transaction costs or information costs are lower uh, uh, with uh, some legal rules than with customs, and that's a disadvantage of custom. Um, and thirdly, uh, a thesis I developed uh, uh, when I wrote uh, a book about uh, this sort of, uh, these sorts of issues, my own view is that customs often evolve efficiently for the group that creates them, uh, but they can be very bad for outsiders to the group. A classic example being the Jim Crow nor uh, norms of the South, uh, which let's assume were uh, good for white Southerners, whether that's true is, uh, I think, not obvious entirely in the long run, but they were certainly just very bad for uh, uh, African Americans in the South and whatever, and so therefore customs are, in many instances, very inappropriate for law. So uh, the law should not follow the, peace, the people's customs, and uh, therefore I, I reject this Stalinist uh, conception of uh, uh, of how the common law should evolve. Now, now my, that, in the remainder of my remarks, let me talk uh, 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 turn to law and economics. If the law is going to look to something else, uh, it can uh, uh, reason uh, uh, any sort of analysis. It's not obvious to me why law and economics is the big bogeyman here. Uh, that is, why is it not critical legal studies or feminism or the legal process school or something like that. So I am intrigued by why, why law and economics was singled out, particularly in a federal society gathering, as the great enemy of, of, of traditionalist law. Um, one possibility, I think, is that it is the dominant uh, paradigm. Uh, I think uh, both uh, Brian and Adam have mentioned the notion that uh, many law and economic analysts uh, stress a particular goal, that of efficient allocation of resources that a lot of people regard as normatively thin, and I think that may be uh, uh, why it is a particular uh, target. Uh, my own view, descriptively, and maybe Brian in his later remarks can refer to this, Brian is the great scholar on the case uh, uh, Keeble against Hickering Hill, uh, involving a battle between duck pond owners uh, in the early 18th century. Uh, many, it's in the Duke Minier and Creer casebook that I assume is widely used here at, uh, at Michigan. My own view is if you want to explain uh, that court's analysis of what it is about and how it distinguishes competition as opposed to interference with uh, production, um, that a law and economics analysis is about as good as you can get as a, if you want a kind of a reductive description of what is going on in that particular case. So my own view is, uh, although I don't uh, embrace the strongest conceptions of descriptive theory that the common law gravitates always toward efficiency, I think it is a, as reductive theory, it's as good as we have. My last point, since my time is, is ending, is there is basically a question for Brian and others who are, I think are more skeptical of law and economics, and this is also for the members of the audience, um, which is there is this conception that law and economics is uh, delegitimizing uh, the, uh, the, the, the evolution of the 
uh, common law. And so I ask you to, to identify some examples of where judges have gone wild, have, have been influenced by Richard Posner's analysis, or that Richard Posner himself has run wild and corrupted the, uh, uh, the common law by bringing in law and economics concepts. And I'll have a better understanding, I think, of the unease uh, behind this, uh, the, the formulation of this panel, if you can come up with some actual examples. My own perception is Richard Posner, for example, is usually more uh, uh, bark than bite. Uh, another case, uh, if you've if you've studied property, is the famous the public law case, um, the Chicago Board of Realtors case involving uh, a tenant reform statute in. Uh, ordinance in the city of Chicago where Posner talks about how economically stupid it all is and how these people have, have no economic understanding at all and then sustains the ordinance. Uh, so that uh, 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 my sense is uh, I, I'm interested in getting examples from people about where law and economics has uh, polluted and delegitimized the lawmaking, uh, common lawmaking process. Thank you. Okay, well, first of all, I endorse uh, the focus on private law here, so there won't be any conflict about that. Um, and I'm not sure, uh, given that we're a little bit um, perhaps unclear, maybe this is a, a case of a vague custom in the making uh, about exactly what the topic is here, uh, I'm not sure that I will be synthesizing or coming in and uh, putting tying everything together. I'll just try to be provocative in my own way, maybe. So is law and economics anti-democratic? Uh, my answer is more often than it needs to, uh, but I'm not going to go through or even endorse, uh, particularly endorse, the familiar litany about how concerns with efficiency will lead to baby selling in the end of the world and all these uh, scary scenarios. Uh, I don't subscribe uh, to any necessary connection between those in the first place. No, and maybe surprisingly, uh, my culprit here, as far as the tension between democracy and law and economics goes, uh, is maybe a little unexpected. It's legal realism itself. Okay, so legal realism is, uh, is uh, the problem, is what I'm largely going to argue. Uh, and now you might say, well, legal realism, that's dead. Um, and I'm going to say that in some sense it rules us from the grave. Uh, as the saying goes, we are all realists now. Uh, and to me, that's the problem. Uh, now, I'm going to show, I I'm show, suggest that uh, there's nothing really wrong with law and economics inspired theories uh, or theories in general or legal realism as a theory uh, for that matter. It's when heroic judges and academics, at least heroically self-conceived judges and academics, offer to rework the world with purported solutions to micro problems, uh, getting into the nitty gritty with uh, complicated economic theories that we're really in legal uh, realism territory uh, and that that's uh, the real source of the problem. Uh, but that's a limited problem, uh, problem though it is. Uh, so most movements in legal thought do draw on legal realism, uh, and it may come as a surprise uh, to some that law and economics is not an exception. Uh, as Tom Merrill, who doesn't have any responsibility for the things I'm about to say, uh, has um, uh, tried to show with me uh, in an essay, uh, Coase himself, um, in his FCC and social cost articles, um, and quite understandably, given his goals, uh, was really not just a realist, but a hyper-realist about uh, property. So let me start with property, which uh, is a good starting point. Um, these assumptions um, basically uh, were reflected 
throughout his article, but especially in the, the uh, part about nuisance. And the idea was that uh, judges, uh, whether they knew it or not, and uh, the more they knew it, the better, would be parceling out stick by stick who gets the right to do what uh, in a very narrow and, um, and somewhat ad hoc way. So who gets to make the noise, who gets to trample the crops or have the crops trampled free and so forth. And this even extended to causation. So the trampling is caused by trampling animals and by trampled upon crops. And I suppose we could uh, extend this uh, to uh, the question of fists and noses when it comes to evaluating punches, uh, although we don't uh, do that in everyday life. And I will suggest that this Cosian agnosticism about causation is a symptom of the problem. Theoretically, it's perfectly fine. It's useful to think about uh, that sometimes. But it does, and it's, as, it's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go really all that far. That there are, to take costs further, transaction cost reasons, uh, not to mention moral reasons, why we do not define entitlements that way. Who does what to whom, who invades whose column of space, are all good ways of approaching a problem uh, ex ante, and uh, it makes uh, the, the question uh, quite simple and solves our problems most of the time. Not all of the time, and that's where we need to override some of these initial decisions, but we should be sparing with them uh, and not just um, take the legal realist bundle of sticks and uh, start parceling out uh, ex post at will. Uh, indeed, if we take a look at this from an ex ante versus ex post point of view, legal realism and law and economics in general are kind of of two minds here. That, of course, law and economics is worried about uh, ex ante incentives, but this um, this this deliberate ignorance or downplaying of pre-existing legal baselines is characteristic of much of law and economics, and I think that's quite unfortunate uh, for information costs, among other reasons. Um, so uh, that brings me uh, to the question of uh, Bentham. Uh, so we could wheel out Bentham right now if we wanted to, I suppose. Um, and I guess metaphorically, that's what we're doing. Uh, and I guess my objection to, to the sort of Benthamite cast of legal realism is this, uh, this technocratic uh, approach. Now, of course, Bentham was no fan of judges in the common law. So in some sense, to the extent that judges are implementing some of this technocracy, uh, to call it Benthamite is a little bit... Um, uh, ironic, uh, and he might be actually spinning uh, if he's actually in his grave. But uh, the idea here is that uh, this, the legal realism, legal realists, with some exceptions, were big fans of Bentham, uh, and I think that's uh, that's uh, quite unattractive uh, for the reasons uh, I'm talking about. Uh, now, one irony here is that um, law and economics, to the extent it gets down into the weeds and is talking about uh, particular issues, is not resting on some kind of general equilibrium analysis. It's partial equilibrium analysis of the most partial sort. Uh, and there are aspects of economics, information cost economics, cognitive science and economics, uh, the theory of second best, which all point to the dangers of this, but, uh, uh, but uh, a general equilibrium analysis is just simply too difficult in most cases. Uh, so how to approach a complex system, which of course uh, the law and uh, not to mention the law in context uh, certainly is. Um, one might think that uh, this is just an obsession with property. Now, all of us happen to be property scholars, which um, I'm not sure what that says, but uh, you might say, well, okay, this, that my hang-up here about legal realism is just uh, my objection to the bundle of rights uh, as taken too far by the legal realists, and I would say that that's not true. Uh, take another example, um, the uh, economic loss rule in torts. Okay, so until recently, I thought actually torts was uh, maybe the one area of private law where law, where legal realism, uh, you know, is the most legitimate. Uh, that you know, we have to 
regulate these activities and who knows what and so forth. Um, and the economic loss rule is seems to be a good candidate for economic analysis. It basically says that, uh, you know, uh, liability for negligence is going to be limited, is going to be denied uh, where uh, there isn't uh, any damage to person or property. It's just pure economic loss. And, of course, we've got lots of theorizing, lots of speculation about whether this is efficient and what kind of exceptions we might have. And now we even have economic analysis in the form of empirical studies about what courts are actually doing with this. And, of course, they're all over the lot and and so forth. Uh, and what are, what are the rationales? Well, maybe it's excessive liability, whatever that is, or foreseeability, even though we have a foreseeability requirement. Uh, and all this is actually uh, pretty depressing that we don't make any more progress than that, although um, there's a lot to talk about. Interestingly, very recently, a more doctrinally oriented analysis came to my attention quite randomly, and um, it made the very simple point that the economic loss rule really is about uh, only uh, allowing recovery where somebody has an in-rem property right, uh, and that these uh, secondary forms of liability like uh, people with a contract related to the damaged property, say it's a boat or something like that, the person who's hired the boat, uh, that's just a matter of contract between the boat owner who does have a right to recover uh, and the... Um, and uh, the contractual party. And the idea is that the contract system, the tort system, the property system operate not completely but largely independently of each other, and the interactions between them are specified, but they're highly limited. Now, this way of thinking used to be uh, the common coin in places like this, but uh, it's largely a dead language, um, and it's, uh, it's high time, I think, to re uh, re-dig it out of uh, the ground. Uh, it's not incoherent. It's not undesirable. It does require some attention to what is normal and what's an exception, and, and it does uh, give these legal baselines uh, some uh, privileged status, uh, and it focuses our attention on how and when they should be overridden, but I think that's all uh, to the good. Now, is the traditional approach that I've described here efficient? Really, that beats me. Um, it, uh, I'd say at a structural level, uh, it does um, lead to a certain simplicity. It certain make, certainly makes uh, intuitive sense in terms of uh, a few uh, uh, very simple efficiency um, stories, but uh, not really at the level of individual rules. It's, uh, it's really an overall system that has a certain plausibility and seemed to work uh, pretty well and can be analyzed in economic terms. But the idea of actually applying it um, uh, directly, economic analysis, to its details uh, seems to me uh, fairly heroic. Now, I was going to talk about custom and so forth, but um, Bob Ellison said it uh, better than I could, and um, I'm not inclined to disagree with myself, so I'll just uh, skip some of that part and we can talk about that. Um, now, I also haven't uh, said much about democracy, and I was uh, thinking of saying a few sort of uh, bomb-throwing things about that, um, and maybe I'll just cut that short. But no, no, now's the time. Okay, no all right, uh, here's, here it goes. Um, now, uh, <laughs> the idea, you know, it's a little hard to say what this topic is, partly because, you know, really we, none of us have talked about what is democracy and, and so forth, and that would be take too much time. I will say that there is, and this may be a little unfair, but I don't think so, uh, a certain very crude uh, notion of what democracy uh, is, in, that the people should get what they want, okay? And no, nobody really usually says this quite so crudely, but actually you do hear that sometimes. Um, but it's implicit in a lot of what people say, and then the idea is that um, people coming along with economic um, uh, analysis are just meanies because they're preventing people from getting what they want. Now, uh, you know, I, I just said uh, technocracy and so forth, uh, I'm not for, um, but when it comes to reminding people that you can't always get what you want, uh, that there are constraints, that there is scarcity, I think that's actually one of the most salutary things uh, about law and economics, that, um, that as voters we have... Uh, a, 
uh, a full incentive to uh, vote, uh, get the warm glow of uh, voting for X, Y, and Z, and we really individually won't re uh, feel any negative effect from our individual vote. Uh, and it's not at all clear how uh, all those uh, things fit together. I mean, obviously, uh, this, is, this could be a problem. It could even be a tragedy of the commons if we think of uh, a sort of uh, philosophy. Uh, sorry, oh, that was a big slip. Uh, property analysis of uh, this kind of um, problem. Now, the scarcity of resources, scarcity of time, scarcity of attention, all of these matter, and uh, whether it, whether judges should be implementing the, uh, something based on that is a good question. I tend to be a little skeptical uh, as far as the details go, but to remind people that there are these scarcities out there sounds trivial, but it actually isn't, and a law school is a very good place to realize that the idea of uh, the principle of scarcity is easy to forget. Uh, the scarcity of the principle of scarcity is actually real, uh, is certainly true. Okay, so reality has a way of intruding in law and economics to the extent that that helps that happen is uh, all to the good, in my view. Uh, so in some legal realism, uh, my main culprit here, as it plays out in real life, not as a theory but as a uh, method of dealing with details, is uh, I would call it a colossal act of vandalism. Uh, so the barbarians are not at the gate. No, uh, we are all barbarians now, uh, but the idea that law and economics has to be a vehicle for overweening technocracy instead of a path back to sanity is uh, not anything necessary, and I'd much prefer the latter. Thanks. Okay. Now, certainly, you all have had an opportunity to find something to disagree about or something disagreeable to say. So, uh, Brian, we will give you the first opportunity to be disagreeable. Well, I don't think I'm going to be disagreeable. Um, I really don't disagree with Bob's view that in certain cases um, it's perfectly plain that one value that judges were attending to was some notion of maximizing wealth. There's a lovely case in 1628, nuisance action against somebody running a brewery, and one of the arguments quite explicitly made was that if this smoke nuisance is uh, you know, accepted by the courts, a, a brewery has to pay out a lot of damages or close down, that's going to be bad for the Commonwealth because there won't be enough beer and everybody knows the British cannot live without beer. Now, um, there it is, it's quite explicit. Um, I'm just very dubious about the sort of generalisation of the argument that this has been a dominant factor or that it can be used to explain more or less everything. A view which is taken, I think, to its extreme in Posner's book, The Economic Analysis of Law. Um, the only other comment I was regarding what Henry says, um, it is true that the realist movement haunts us all um, and, you know, it's, it's supposed to be over, but it isn't over. And law school teaching, of course, encourages a sort of realist attitude of mind. We spend most of our time arguing about the fringes of legal rules and looking at cases which don't seem to produce conclusive arguments going one way rather than the other. And we, we think the whole law is like that, it's a complete state of muddle. And um, it's um, an unrealistic view, but it's also, I think, encourages people to think... I wish we could get at some other sort of non-legal analysis which would give us clarity, certainty, tell us where to go and go away from the messy business of court decisions 
to some hard empirical stuff based on economics and so on, that this is a sort of looking for a certainty which we feel we haven't got still you know, today in the law and I'm not sure that there's anything more certain about economic arguments in pointing the way together than there is about legal arguments. I'm very dubious about that but I think that's one of the attractions of the uh, the more extreme versions of the law economics movement. Uh, and of course, we have a problem here because Bob here is not one of these crazy extremists. <laughs> so it's perfectly plain, he isn't. What we really need is a crazy extremist here um, to, to set the argument up. Um, uh, can you name names? Well, I'm not going to name names. No, I'm interested in, in, in who are the crazy extremists either in, uh, in academia or on the bench. Well, I think the more, the, I think Posner's writings or some of them, okay. as opposed to his behaviour on the bench, which is quite different, um, right. has carried uh, some of these arguments to extreme points in his book, Economic Analysis of Law. And in fact, um, there was always a sort of move when I was in Chicago from people who said, one day Judge Posner's going to say, it was all a joke. <laughs> but he never has said that and, but he is a person with a twinkle in his eye and a great sense of humour right. and one sometimes wonders whether some of it isn't just pushing it to extremes possibly sometimes as a teaching technique I mean, his famous article on the free market in babies you know which people say it's shocking and say nothing shocking about it it makes you think hard about the virtues of the market system in allocating goods. Here the good is of course a baby, which we don't like to think of as a good. I mean, if anyone's had babies, no, they're not a good, they're a bad in the middle of the night. But, um, it is a technique for making you think hard about the merits of markets as a way of allocating resources. And I think it's a wonderful article, though some people think it's an evil, wicked article. I don't think that at all. Um, uh, I have the same uh, view of, of Richard Posner uh, as uh, actual beliefs. Uh, one, one principle of economics is you look at revealed preference. You look at what people actually do, not what they spout off about things and whatever. So Posner, I, I think the economic analysis of law, which he first drafted in uh, uh, the early 1970s, um, uh, did express uh, the sorts of things that would get Brian upset, and many. I think most of the members of the Michigan law faculty. This law school is regarded as one of the centers of skepticism about law and economics, and my guess is from Bill Miller and Jim Creer and uh, uh, James Boyd White and others. Uh, you get you're not getting uh, unalloyed uh, pro law and economics analysis. The interesting thing for me is that when Posner got on the bench. Uh, he, in fact, uh, maybe you can identify some, some decisions that he handed down that were outrageous, or, but I'm, I'm not sure I know of any. Um, and then his, uh, his writings, actually, he, he, then he claimed that he became a pragmatist. And I'm not exactly sure what that means. I think it means you consider the kitchen sink, you consider all sources of analysis, you consider all values and whatever. And that's the real, by revealed preference, that's the real Posner here. So I'm a little bit worried about what the bogeyman is here. I mean, I repeat that question and invite members of the audience to nominate uh, either particular judges who have abused their, uh, uh, their role in developing the common law by stressing efficiency too much or relying upon uh, abstract law and economics uh, too much. 
to, uh, to support the general theory that uh, there is a lot of descriptive power in the notion that the common law evolves efficiently, let me name a couple of cases uh, for the students, uh, both nuisance cases, uh, where the common law preceded law and economic analysis uh, and showed the brilliance, if you will, about judges deciding real cases and coming up with solutions. One is the famous uh, uh, boomer against Atlantic Cement Company involving the remedy for uh, a polluter who pollutes many, many, uh, over, over a, wide, a wide territory. Um, uh, two years after that decision, Calabresi Malamud wrote a very fundamental uh, article saying that when you had large numbers of parties, you probably should not give out injunctions. You should rather only give the remedy of damages, uh, which is by and large what, what nuisance law does. Uh, Henry, I think, may be a critic of this, so he may regard this as a retrograde decision and whatever. Uh, my point is that this decision preceded Calabresi and Malamud, that the implicit kind of analysis that Calabresi and Malamud might have applied was applied uh, prior to their article. Uh, Calabresi and Malamud also came up with a case called, uh, something called Rule 4, which is that a, uh, an injunction would be available only if the, those benefiting from it paid for it. And then, lo and behold, it turned out there was this decision, Spur uh, the Spur uh, uh, Industries case, uh, where a court had invented that uh, remedy uh, without influence of Calabresi Malamud, that this was a so-called brilliant insight of law and economics, in fact, uh, emerged uh, from the bottom up. So I think there are lots of instances of that sort, and my own view is that if you want a reductive theory of what's going on in the common law, that uh, the efficiency tendencies of the common law is, in fact, the best one we have, although I do regard it as overly reductive. Uh, yes. Okay, so I would like to pick up a, on a couple of points that uh, uh, Brian and Bob just made. Um, I do think that the central issue for me is uh, what's at the core and what's at the fringe? Uh, and it is true that in law school, we spend a lot of time on the fringe. We spend a lot of time on the difficult issues, and we give students and ourselves the impression that that's the way it is all the time or that that somehow calls into question the basic answers that apply in most of the situations. Take property rules and liability rules. Um, in real life, liability rules are uh, far more exceptional than they are uh, in law review pages or in law schools. Uh, and there's a reason for that, that they are simple, that they delegate a lot of authority to owners. Uh, they work well most of the time. And when we're talking about liability rules, we're usually talking about a problem that's gotten so out of hand uh, that where there really truly are high transaction costs and yet high stakes that we need to go for uh, something else. But that notion uh, really does not uh, – th that is not the dominant theme in law and economics. It's usually that we can have yet another, even more clever round of liability rules to take care of the problems that people have noticed with the previous round. Uh, and that's not the way the law uh, should evolve, uh, and thankfully it, by and large, doesn't. Um, I'm not, uh, 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 Bob, I think, uh, deliberately brought, brought up Boomer and Spur uh, <laughs> uh, because it uh, ties into these themes. I, I'm willing to grant that Boomer is a close case. I mean, I guess that does put me uh, on the fringe because people usually regard it as uh, self-evidently correct. But think about uh, moving uh, a polluting uh, cement factory uh, into an area. Maybe we would want a process that's a little more ex ante, like we have for uh, condemning easements, private easements uh, in certain states, that we want uh, the homeowners to have some kind of due process right to say, no, there's a better place for this plant and so forth. The idea of just going ahead and building it and letting a judge sort everything out afterwards, I think, is 
not a terribly good idea. Uh, and the, the damages for that matter in Boomer were a lot higher than the Court of Appeals uh, was talking about. Uh, and the, I, I do think that Boomer itself leads uh, to a caution about doing that sort of thing too often. It may well be at the end of the day that we need to use damages in you know, high transaction cost situations in the sense of a lot of uh, affected people, but I don't think it's nearly as obvious uh, as people say. And I think uh, Spur and Rule 4, I, I would call Spur rather spurious as a, uh, a pro-law and economics uh, case. Uh, number one, Spur is the only case that's ever done this. I think that, that gives me pause, not uh, 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 just to begin with. Furthermore, Rule 4 is, uh, is basically destabilizing the basic uh, pattern of entitlements. The whole reason in Boomer and cases like that we go from ent- uh, property rule for the resident to residents to pro- uh, liability rule uh, for the uh, residents is that the property rule is too stringent. We do not have the same situation when we supposedly flip things around and do the mirror image. It's not a matter of flipping the entitlement around. The entitlement is not the little stick as to whether we will have pollution or not. It's really uh, whether uh, people get to invade and so forth. And and the basic package of rights does not include a right to pollute. Uh, So the idea that Rule 4 is softening some kind of ex-ante entitlement that we've uh, 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 put out there is is just just not right. And uh, so I'm not denying that there could be some scenario where Rule 4 is appropriate, but the idea that, uh, oh, wow, if we just uh, liberate ourselves and think in terms of mirror images and so forth, that's exactly the problem of not respecting these clumpy entitlements that we've agreed on ex ante, and we will only override for very good reasons. Rule 4 is not doing that. Uh, Now, not to mention the fact that Rule 4 came up. I mean, this is another symptom of how weird it is. The procedural situation there of the developer suing and so forth uh, provides, I admit, an alternative explanation for why this is more widespread. But I do think there are normative reasons to be very suspicious of Rule 4 in an in-rem context where lots of people are involved. Actually, you can regard SPUR as sort of an equitable approach. And one big weakness, I think, of law and economics is that it does not take equity seriously. The idea is, oh, we want to be ex ante. We don't want to uh, we don't want to think in terms of ex post uh, discretion. But there are situations where ex post discretion is appropriate and less harmful, particularly when we're talking about identified almost quasi in personam, really face to face parties. And we're not making a rule that will spread out into the world. So I think there there's the problem with uh, the sort of conventional liability rule approach to rule for and spur is that it really strips out a lot of detail that's there for a reason uh, and that points to rule for, if it's valid at all, to be uh, really very squarely located on the fringe uh, and not at the core. And, you know, every year I read exams where people say, oh, well, this is a core case of rule for. Of course, that's what the court would do. And I'm like, how did you get that out of my course? But um, (laughs) I guess it's uh, a tide that's overwhelming, uh, at least locally. Yeah. Thank you, Henry. Was there any rejoinder at that, or are we ready to open things up? Okay, fair enough. Uh, Well, we have two microphones set up here, and uh, if you can come to the microphone and uh, pose your question, we'll try to maintain things on an orderly basis. Hello, Ryan Brown from Oklahoma City University. First, my apologies. They lost my luggage, so I don't have courtroom attire. But, uh, Professor Alexson, you asked for examples of um, sort of judges gone wild. And uh, I do have, uh, of course, I think it was already Sounds answered. like the name of a good movie uh, to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I know that uh, Judge Richard Posner, of course, recently wrote a book, uh, Not a Suicide Pact, uh, with regards to the Constitution and national security. Uh, do you feel that Judge Posner's views on national security and a flexible constitution uh, in times of national crisis, does that fit into the law and economics and realism model, or is he sort of out on his own? Uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking of just uh, invoking the, entitled, the, the, the private law theme of this session and uh, uh, say the obvious, which is I'm not an expert at all on national matters of national security, and I won't say they're trivial like I implied at the, uh, at the outset of my remarks and whatever, but I really don't know a whole lot about it. It's, it's interesting to me whether or not uh, Posner might run wild uh, uh, in, his, in, in, his, in his lawmaking and in in rendering decisions in, a, in the public law sector more than he does in the private law sector where I'm more likely to know it. I totally agree with Brian that uh, uh, Richard Posner and also his son Eric, I think, are self-consciously provocateurs. Um, and uh, I know other law professors, some of whom are at this conference, who I regard in the same mode. I try to be a provocateur as well. And I regard it as uh, pedagogically very, very stimulating. You know, it helps to stimulate and stir the pot. I think if you want to know Posner's true views, uh, you look at his opinions, and I claim that there is quite a disparity between the, the bark and the bite, and that might be true in, in the national security area as well. So, but uh, 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 maybe, maybe I don't regard I, I have the highest of esteem for both Henry and Brian, but I don't think among the three of us we are would be hired uh, for uh, uh, to provide legal services on issues of national security. Thank you, Professor. Uh, just uh, Jose Horneman from Liberty University. Uh, this is for primarily for Professor Ellickson, but uh, for the whole panel to comment, comment on perhaps. You were asking about particular examples of how law and economics has sort of operated in derogation of the common law, if you will. Right. Um, and I believe it was 2003 or so, there was two cases in the Seventh Circuit. I believe Judge Easterbrook was the author of both opinions, uh, Gateway and ProCD where uh, specifically the rule, uh, the common law rule of uh, acceptance at the time of the uh, sale of the goods uh, that seems to have been applicable before that was changed to more of, it basically deals with something that's probably more close at hand to all of us, the uh, shrink wrap agreements and the terms within the shrink wrap, what, at what point does acceptance happen um, how can a party get out of? How can a buyer get out of the contract for purchasing the software? And uh, under traditional rules of contract, it would seem that the uh, the, the contract of offer and acceptance took place at the point of sale. However, Judge Easterbrook, using law and economics principles, uh, and basically said, well, it's more efficient, less less uh, transaction costs if we just allow people to return their computer if they get home and decide it's what they didn't want or 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 it's defective or whatever. Um, and said that, well, you know, basically they've got to accept whatever is in that box, even though they never had a chance to even see the terms of the contract. Uh, can you comment on that as far as is that really in derogation of the common law, and uh, does that cut against your theory that there aren't really any examples or none that you can think of? Yeah, this is a uh, – I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat aware of this opinion. Uh, I think Henry may know more about it uh, than I can comment on it. We, we're mere – I'm a mere property professor, and I, regard, I do regard this largely as a as a contracts uh, a, a kind of a kind of issue. I think the common law clearly changes, and one thing we need is a both positive and normative theories about why it does change. 
if that was terribly destructive of common law traditions, one would expect a certain amount of chaos to have ensued from this uh, invasion of alien law and economic analysis, which uh, uh, very much uh, 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 confounded uh, uh, buyers, of, uh, buyers of software, uh, buyers of, of computers and so forth, uh, from, uh, as opposed to their expectations. And I'm not aware of any such chaos. So this would, might be an example that, again, that this sort of law and economics here is a bogeyman and whatever. It's really hard to identify cases where chaos ensued. But some of you may know, you're, you're the, you, you know your generation buys, the, buys these machines more than mine, and uh, uh, maybe you do know of situations where your behavior was affected and this disrupted your lives and whatever. So I, I again uh, 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 confess uh, this is an annoying pattern, but I'm confessing ignorance of uh, this area of law. Henry, you know more about this? Henry, are you annoyed? Um, yeah, I... Um, I'm of mixed minds about ProCD, uh, partly because I, my main interest in it is the, the pre preemption analysis, which is actually more interesting, I think, from a property point of view, that uh, he found that the contract here, the application of Wisconsin contract law was not preempted by the copyright statute, uh, and he relied heavily on the in personam and rem uh, distinction, and a lot of people who are more sort of directly functionally interested uh, have had a lot of criticism for that, but I think that... Uh, that approach, uh, his approach on that goes a long way, that there's some legitimacy to that. Uh, on the question of offer and acceptance, uh, I, I'm less familiar with that aspect of the case, but my understanding is that there's an extra level of problem here that, um, that first of all, this is a UCC uh, problem, and the, there may have been parts of the UCC which direct, address this more directly, being a license rather than uh, simple, simply a contract, and so there's there's some kind of muddle there. Um, I, I agree with Bob that as far as if this were really truly a common law contract case, uh, the idea of uh, interpreting offer and acceptance uh, differently for uh, with changing technology doesn't uh, um, surprise or shock me. Uh, but the ProCD case itself is uh, a very sort of strange um, intersection of a, a lot of different um, uh, areas of law. I think this is quite a short point. Um, Richard Epstein, in an article, I forget the name of it or where it appeared, but um, he makes what always seems to me a very good point, that what you might call the fine-tuning of the um, rules of private law, it's very implausible to argue that that has big economic effects. I think one of the examples he gives is there's... If a business is thinking of locating in one state rather than another, they're not going to worry about whether the rule in Rylands and Fletcher applies in that state. <coughs> a lot of these things we'll be fascinated by in first-year cl uh, classes are the fine-tuning of private law rules, and it's implausible to suppose that they make much difference to the gross national product. Um, Tom, say something incendiary. Uh, Tom Merrill, Columbia Law School. Uh, I'm a member of BAM, and I would like to denounce this panel. <laughs> Wrong. No, uh, seriously. I, uh, when I saw the panel title, the thing that flipped into my mind was that the difference between democracy and law and economics is that democracy is based on one person, one vote, and economics is based on one dollar, one vote. And so you've got sort of a basically different metric for decision-making uh, right there. And it seems to me that some of the issues that, you know, even private law experts confront uh, 
uh, might come out differently uh, if you thought about them in terms of one person, one vote, as opposed to one dollar, one vote. Uh, one thing that occurs to me are uh, rules of damages, for example, in wrongful death cases. Uh, uh, the economics approach would tend to try to figure out what the expected earnings of the deceased were and how much uh, 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 earning power they had, what their uh, lifetime discounted expected future earnings were, and award damages based on that sort of a one dollar, one vote approach. A uh, uh, more democratic approach, arguably, if you could call it that, would be to sort of set some kind of absolute scale for how much a life is worth and everybody's worth the same thing. Uh, another possibility that occurs to me is uh, some of these fights over beaches and whether or not beaches and other types of uh, assets should be uh, open to the public or should be subject to private property rights. And uh, the economist might say, well, if you open it up to the public, you're going to have a lot of litter. You're not going to have any lifeguards. Uh, it's going to have all these inefficiencies. And the democratic approach might say, well, we want to open up these resources so that every, every member of the polis has an opportunity to uh, uh, affiliate with every other member of the polis, the Carol Rose's comedy of the commons kind of vision, uh, and that that would be a more democratic approach to deciding those sorts of issues. So I'm, I'm wondering if the panel sees uh, uh, any other issues or disagrees with me about those being examples of issues where a kind of a democratic approach might lead you in a slightly different way than an economic approach. I'm going to try and impose some order here. Uh, Brian, is the, is the life of a school teacher worth less than that of an investment banker? <laughs> well, it was decided in English tort law, and I can't do the name of the case, but it's about the 1870s, that people got their actual potential loss of earnings and not an average sum. Um, and that was one of those sort of critical decisions which you know, people don't notice because they think it's so obvious, but it's not so obvious. I think that one person, as opposed to one dollar, I think one of our big problems in the modern world is that a lot of the law isn't dealing with persons at all in a straightforward sense, it's dealing with corporations. Um, and where they quite fit into the uh, democratic scheme is, uh, seems to be very problematic because um, they're not individuals, um, they are artificial entities and so forth and um, a lot of the law is actually deals with this I'm very struck when I teach property law that the discussions of the merits of property law, the demerits there's a famous piece by Demsets which we all have to go home and you know take light nourishing meals until we follow the argument of famous famous piece um, it's all about individuals, but actually so much property in America isn't owned by individuals, it's owned by corporations. Quite where they fit into the democratic theory seems to me to be problematic. I would have thought the Boomer case was driven by um, corporations trump individuals. I think it's a terrible decision, but uh, some people think it's a wonderful decision. I think it depends on how you approach it. Um. Uh. Uh, Tom, I'll, uh, I do think law and economics pays uh, relatively little attention to distributive issues of distributive justice and symbolic equality and things of that sort that the word democracy, I think, conjures up. Uh, the standard line in law and economics, of course, is from Capilo and Chevelle and others, is that when you're creating, you know, you're working on issues like remedies for injunctions and whatever, that's not the occasion on which to 
uh, give from corporations to the little guy or vice versa and whatever, uh, uh, that that should be done through broader tax and spending policies. Now, my own view is everyone cares about it. I don't know anybody who doesn't care about distributive justice. And one thing the law does in, in a lot of areas is provide for symbolic equality among people, one person, one vote being a classic case. Uh, the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, gives a certain basic entitlement to everyone. Every state constitution uh, creates a right to education, uh, which is uh, symbolically very, very important, important for distributive justice. So I think clearly those values come in. Uh, I don't think they come in centrally in most, uh, most in, in the low-level areas of, of, of private law, like remedies for nuisance, like shrink wrap uh, contracts and whatever. Those are not the occasions, I think, to bring them in. And as I say to my students uh, repeatedly, so much that it bores them, is that the doctrine never asks the judges to take that into account. Uh, the judges might sometimes take distributive justice into account in these low-level cases, but uh, the doctrine never points them in that direction. The wealth of the parties is, in fact, uh, if, it, if admitted, uh, sometimes is reversible error as prejudicial in lots of private law cases. Yeah, I'd just add that um, uh, some of some of our uh, private law, like corporations, uh, can be thought of as a as a kind of mechanism, and it's not um, and it's not immediately clear that every detail of every mechanism or even every mechanism itself has to be quote unquote democratic in order to fit into a democratic society. I think the danger with uh, with common law decision making is uh, when the decisions do implicate, when they become a substitute for other more democratically uh, arrived at decisions and when they don't. And sometimes um, the parts of the law that seem to sound le the least in efficiency, like where we, in an earlier era, a court of equity would be acting, uh, often those, not always, but often those are uh, cases in which we're not setting the ground rules that will uh, apply in a wide variety of cases. So I think a lot more attention to sort of when and why we bring in other values or apparently bring in other values uh, is in order. And uh, the tendency, I think, in law and economics and in law schools and uh, general uh, not just law and economics, is to sort of smush it all together and uh, not to make these distinctions. And uh, when you do that, then I think uh, many of these questions look a lot more puzzling than they do if, uh, uh, if you don't um, uh, uh, just uh, mix everything into one big bowl. Brian up for you. Campbell, uh, in your analysis of uh, the tension between law and economics and democratic principles, uh, what would you say to issues where the people's customary common law stood in the way of, of uh, market efficiency, and the people through their democratic processes actually reformed the common law, such as the UCC is a big example, or maybe the e-sign statutes recently. Uh, these are cases where through democrat uh, the democratic processes have served the interests of law and economics. It's taken away some of the, what we say, the people's custom and replaced it with, with the people's actual will now. And given given us recent statutes like that, would you really say that the uh, democratic process and uh, law and economics are really in opposition? Thanks.
Well, I am, uh, although, uh, as I say, more enthusiastic about custom than most law professors uh, recognize limits of custom, so I can imagine lots of situations where legislation would improve on uh, uh, the status quo ante when, when matters were, dis were, were governed by custom. So I certainly agree with the possibility, uh, uh, the possibility that, you, uh, that you advance. Uh, just to maybe throw some fire, do you have any thoughts on Lochner, particularly uh, Holmes's dissent, maybe how that impacts law and economics, the whole social statics? Well, we're, we're constantly being polluted with public law here, and those of us who regard um, <laughs> who actually regard private law as far more fundamental. I mean, this is this is an interesting. Uh, it's interesting that people's perceptions are that public laws is what matters, and that con law is uh, you know the con so I'm, I'm sorry to say this. You can defend it, uh, but. Um, uh, that uh, my own view is if you look more, 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 uh, uh, look at the really fundamental rules, a lot of them are private law rules. I'm sorry, I'm being a wise guy, so you should continue, continue with your question. Well, just this idea that, you know, maybe this is some area that you can bridge public law and private law and talk about law and economics, and people seem to have a lot of opinions on Lochner, and I just threw that out. Yeah. Well, I would say to see if Brian is the most skeptical of law and economics, uh, uh, do you, don't you think that in thinking about an issue like Lochner, uh, which involved, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, wage and hour legislation in the employment sector, uh, uh, don't you think that law and economics could some, bring some insights into the effects of those statutes? They wouldn't necessarily decide whether it's constitutional or not, but isn't this a case where you're glad law and economics is with us? Um, yes, I, I mean, I'm... No objection whatever to uh, economic factors being taken into account by courts. Uh, what I'm skeptical about is um, this as a theory according to which that economic factors should take precedence over other values and some sort of automatic pecking order. I'm skeptical about the view that the development of private law has in fact been largely driven by the pursuit of economic efficiency. But I think it would be perverse to argue that economic factors shouldn't be taken into account. I'll give you a sort of simple example, it's a bit like Boomer. There's a case back in the 40s in England where an angling association sued a big company, British Selenese, for polluting the water so they couldn't catch the, these disgusting fish like pike and so on, which they wanted to catch. Um, and this was a little guise against a big corporation, and they won the action um, because the company was polluting it. But then the judge uh, said, well, wait a minute, folks. We don't want to close down British Selenese and devastate the local economy. So delay was imposed in the exercise of discretion on when the injunction came into force to give them time to clean up their act and so forth. seems to me perfectly sensible. And... The anglers didn't object to that either. They thought that's reasonable. It'll take them some time to clean this river up, and it did. Um, but uh, I don't see an objection to that. Ben Johnson, and uh, I guess my question, kind of coming back to Professor Merrill's question, uh, I kind of view it's kind of a false choice between one person, one vote, one dollar, one vote. Um, economics is concerned with the idea of utility which, and kind of running through this, is kind of this impoverished view of utility that we can just match one util up with X number of dollars and then we'll be able to find the correct allocation at some point. And so um, I'm kind of curious as to maybe where 
you run into the problem between law and economics and democracy is when our revealed preferences as to how we do things with our dollars are not necessarily how we would like them to be with our votes. And one example might be when they ask people, are we sick and tired of seeing um, the Monica Lewinsky scandal in the papers? And like 80% said yes, and yet it was like the highest circulation they'd ever had for a lot of major papers. Um, and so it seems like there are a lot of instances where we as people fall victim in our private actions to our worser angels, but in our public selves, um, democratically and in other instances, we might try to call ourselves collectively and bind ourselves to um, some higher purpose. And uh, so I kind of wonder, if is in there somewhere a, a means to kind of introduce some equity into the law, especially in like effort breach contracts or property other places, um, where we can kind of enrich the notion of utility um, in our community to kind of account for the fact that sometimes we want a little more than what we display and that the things that we value are not necessarily monetizable all the time. I guess I'm the designated uh, per speaker. Um, uh, well, one thing uh, I, I certainly agree with uh, is that there's another value out here that in Tom Merrill's uh, typology, uh, for example, was not mentioned. I think people care enormously about their social status, that if you look at in Rawls when he talked about equality, didn't just talk about material equality and dollars and whatever, that there are other societies are giving out other things as well that are very, very important to people, and we don't have much of a handle on that. And, uh, but uh, but that's, that's, uh, that's, another, uh, that's another concern for people who are worried about this distribution of, of, of things. Um, there is, I think it's, uh, I'm struck that there's sort of a romance with democracy, uh, perhaps, uh, in the room, uh, which is a greater romance than I have. Uh, I, the last panel indicated the flaws of decision-making through legislatures and that how uh, the initiative process as a corrective is, is deeply flawed as well. Uh, we have very diff we have a lot of problems of making collective decisions and whatever. And again, compared to most people, I uh, like the way much more decentralized institutions of civil society make decisions, uh, that is, through markets, which have under, underneath them a core of law, of property rights and whatever, but also norm-making uh, and norm-enforcement through self-help and gossip and, and, and so forth. Um, my own view is that's very often a better way for a society to structure itself than, than to use... Uh, and to use government. So I'm struck here that in the Federalist Society session of all places, uh, there is this obsession with big government. So maybe, uh, maybe I'm not, uh, maybe I'm not capturing the thrust. I don't think that's Mr. Johnson's uh, uh, view of the world, uh, but uh, I'm struck by that aspect that we, 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 if we, we want a lot of democracy. The way I read the word democracy is we want a lot more decision making through government, and uh, I'm shocked. I'm going to intervene here. Yep. Uh, uh, Brian, is, is democracy just a lot of cheap talk and posturing? No. I come to democracy, you know, partially for living in a democratic country, but as a legal level, I come to it because I do work on the European Convention on Human Rights, and the Convention on Human Rights was drafted to form a statement of the basic core values which were prerequisites to the existence of a democratic society. So that was an attempt to translate the idea of democracy into um, uh, a legal form. And in the negotiations, um, there was some resistance from some people to the idea of putting in anything about 
holding free elections and so forth, though it is now in the first protocol, because it was said that if you had freedom of association and freedom from arbitrary detention and a right to fair trial and freedom of expression and freedoms of this sort and so forth, um, you just get democracy, because democracy was just would appear if you had respect for these core values. So I think you can, and I have some sympathy with that, I think you can attempt to set out um, what are the values which have to be respected in a democratic society. Um, I think the idea that democratic societies are just about the people getting what they want or one person, one vote, are extremely simplistic views because if you have one person, one vote and that's it, um, then uh, what happens to minorities and so forth? They're just crushed. And although Hitler didn't come to power through a popular vote, um, he did get a very big vote in uh, Germany and so forth, and um, that vote was one which, insofar as it affects what he did, destroyed democracy in Germany. Um, so I don't think... I think you can attempt to state what these values are, though you can always argue about them at the, the edges and precisely how they work out. Yeah, yeah. yeah although I would make a, pl a plea for uh, coming back to the idea that some of these uh, uh, private law topics we're talking about are too low level uh, to really uh, need requ or require uh, a, a big intersection with uh, foundational principles that would be the um, uh, the sort of entry point for uh, judicial decision making of the most um, intrusive sort. I mean, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Euro European uh, uh, I believe it's the European Court of Human Rights uh, declared that English adverse possession law violated the owner's rights. And I think uh, when we get to that point. Uh, the e European Union uh, has gone far beyond uh, its usefulness, um, and so I, 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 uh, I find that uh, kind of troubling. Um, going back to the, the question that, that was sort of the uh, uh, prompting of all this, I, I do think that uh, some forms of reasoning that are sort of looked down upon by law and economics, like corrective justice or certain kinds of fairness uh, arguments, uh, can uh, serve uh, useful functions, uh, not, not just in their own right, but also if you take a utilitarianism that's uh, sort of high level enough, um, you can explain to yourself, if you happen to be one of those kinds of utilitarians, uh, that maybe they're not uh, so crazy after all. I mean, the idea of who invaded whom and so forth in nuisance uh, really came in for a lot of uh, criticism and sort of um, uh, uh, disdain, uh, but actually uh, there's a lot more to be said for it uh, than, than that sort of maybe um, uh, uh, very low-level utilitarian uh, kind of approach would have uh, led us to believe. So, uh, so I, that's not a complete answer to the question of what value should come in, but uh, the idea that law and economics in its sort of low-level utilitarian form can sweep too many uh, ways for other forms of reasoning to at least raise their heads, I do think is uh, somewhat of a concern. Just as a minor point, people, I mean, it's perfectly true that some crazy judges did take the view you've said about adverse possession, but you can all relax. Um, adverse possession has survived the trip to the Strasbourg court, and we still can have first-year courses with questions on it in England, just as you have them here, so... 
Um, there it is. But there were some people who did take that view. Hi, uh, Lee Liberman, Otis, the, with the uh, Federalist Society. Um, uh, probably uh, f foolishly, I'm going to try to take up Professor Ellickson's uh, challenge here. Um, I do wonder, and, and I, I, as a graduate of the law of the University of Chicago Law School and a big fan of Richard Epstein's, nonetheless, I, I do wonder if, if the hypothesis that uh, it, it, it's at least equally good, if not better, to have strict liability in, in, in product liability hasn't been a significant and destructive uh, uh, rule adopted in law, and if law and economics didn't play a significant role, at least in legitimating it. A nice, a nice example. Um, uh, I'm getting trying to think about the history, uh, Lee. Uh, whether, what my view is that was, you know, the Escola dissent, uh, where Trainer pushes strict liability in products, is. 1946, as I recall. So it's way before that idea kind of doesn't come out of law and economics. It, it comes out, it comes much earlier than that. And the movement, I think, towards strict liability again precedes uh, um, certainly any, any writing by Richard Posner and and and, and whatever. Uh, Guido Calabresi's work, I think, supported it, but that didn't appear till uh, the basic book in 1970, and the, the revolution is largely over. So this is again an example where. We academics like to think that we create the ideas and whatever, and then the common law judges might follow them. If you look at history, uh, in fact, the sequence is often is often the opposite. Uh, whether or not this is a destructive uh, theory is the way I teach. Uh, well, actually, I teach torts, believe it or not. Uh, uh, is that uh, uh, in many of its applications, the strict liability principle works identically with the negligence principle, which uh, preceded it, uh, which is uh, the identif identification of design defects, the failure to have warnings, and so forth, is you do a learned hand cost-benefit analysis, and there's not much change. So there is some change with manufacturing defects and whatever. My own get uh, I tend to agree with, with Brian, is... Uh, uh, it's a horrible thing to say to law students, but in my view, law matters a heck of a lot less than a lot of people, uh, a lot of people think it does. Um, I'm not sure that's Richard Epstein's view. Um, uh, uh, so there are, I think there are, I think you're, you're on to a nice area, and uh, maybe there's a law review article there for uh, someone, uh, 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 some specialist in the, uh, 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 some, some skeptic who wants to take on law and economics could try to run with that one. Good try. Johns, Duquesne University. I actually have a question about the EU versus Microsoft, the commission decision that just came down. Uh, it was decided in American courts largely the same issues, and then recently the commission gave their final decision. And uh, the economics, different professors have said this was a ridiculous decision. The commission shouldn't be able to say this. The European Union shouldn't be able to affect the market. But as you know, uh, when the commission made their decision, Microsoft was compelled to do things that would affect in every other market. And this is a law and economics question because I'm just wondering how we can counteract that with our private system, how we can stop the European Union and other countries from making these decisions that have a broad sweeping effect no matter what we say. So. Uh, I have not read the decision, and I've only, uh, I only have um, uh, sort of secondhand knowledge of it. I would... Um, so let me just answer it in a somewhat general way. I mean, from what I've heard, it, it's troubling, uh, but I would 
say one thing, that this, this panel was uh, focusing primarily on the common law. I mean, uh, Bob actually um, uh, uh, brought, that, brought that in. And antitrust, I think, is is a very interesting area. It's not my area. I, I did take antitrust, which uh, maybe is unusual um, these days. But the, uh, but the, the problem with antitrust is that um, it, uh, it certainly goes beyond the common law, although it's written in a very um, – American antitrust law is written in a very sort of vague way that um, invites a sort of common law style of decision-making. Um, and the odd, oddity of uh, American antitrust law is that uh, the sort of economic approach to antitrust uh, really, in some sense, is not the original intent, but it uh, does seem to uh, serve a lot of – uh, purpose. Now, the problem is that antitrust, as, uh, as, as conceived that way, if we passed it again today, it probably would um, have more of that flavor, does invite a lot of detailed economic decision-making. Uh, but I think some of the dangers we've talked about or uh, uh, touched on here of law and economics being used in a highly detailed way do apply to some extent with antitrust. It's not sort of unavoidable, but the idea of um, highly detailed uh, judicial decision-making on the basis of antitrust as opposed to a uh, somewhat more uh, rough-and-ready uh, approach that doesn't require vast amounts of information, that, that tension has to be uh, uh, struck somewhat differently in antitrust in the direction of expertise, but it is really uh, does raise some of the same questions. Uh, and part of your question has to do with the extraterritorial effects of some of these uh, decisions, which, which are uh, troubling as well. But the whole idea that antitrust not only requires a sort of heroic amounts of information, but also um, has in the past undermined its own um, goals, and I, I would say European Union uh, competition law, uh, if not a complete misnomer, does uh, somewhat have uh, the flavor, a different uh, focus and flavor that seems not to be uh, consistent with some of the um, spirit of American antitrust law, uh, not that that's been implemented in a, in, uh, in a wholly consistent way either. So antitrust, I would say, is a very troubling area, and what the allocation of decision-making should be and where judges fit into that and how different it is, if at all, from uh, how different it is from the common law are really uh, extremely tough questions, but I think some of the same trade-offs that we're talking about here uh, apply there as well. I'm going to let you answer, ask your question, but first I want uh, Jean to come up. Did you have some logistics announcements of great importance? I, I, I had two or three logistics announcements uh, uh, right after this panel. The, the uh, box launches will be, will be available right outside. Um, I wanted to ask uh, th uh, our, the people who uh, run our student division to stand so you know who they are so you can introduce yourself to them during the course of during the course of the uh, uh, symposium uh, if you so so when you talk with them on the, on the phone or by email you have some idea who you're talking with um, and uh, I'll, I'll ask them each to wave as I mentioned their name our student division director is Peter Redpath um, uh, Kate Beer just started with us um, on, on his right uh, on the far right is Elizabeth Leroy, who some of you have been in touch with. Elizabeth, raise your, raise your hand so they know who you are. High enough they can see it. Um, and uh, Daniel Sir, uh, who's, a, who's, who's one of you, he's a third-year law student at Marquette right now, but he is going to be joining us as the deputy director of our faculty division starting in June. And so while you're not dealing with him yet in that context, you, 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 will, you will be if you're working on our chapters next year. So I wanted to encourage all four of you to, uh, not all of you, to 
students to, to meet any or all of our four students and, and introduce yourself to them. Um, and the last logistical announcement is the um, for those who both have the spectacular type of academic record necessary and are interested in the legal academy, in room 236, we're going to have uh, people will take their box lunches, those who are going there, and we'll have some discussion of some, some, some of the nature and challenges of, of, of for those in, interested in entering the legal academy. Um, as I say, you know, that's an incredibly, incredibly hard thing to do, but uh, uh, you know, you're absolutely top schools and have absolutely top grades. It's possible, after all. The, the panelists up here certainly did it. So anyway, thanks. Okay, so in order to uh, give people a chance to get their lunch and, and make it to that panel, we're going to make this the last question. So this is kind of a bit of pressure on you. Well, my question is that from an outside observer in the sense that I have no particular interest in uh, private law, uh, the underlying theory of law and economics seems fairly conspicuously a uh, act utilitarian rule. And I'm wondering if the uh, implementation of that as a rule, utilitarian rule, where he goes back, or whatever the judge is, and perhaps Posner, goes back and considers this maybe not as an economic rule, but as a rule of primary conduct, whether that might explain the half-hearted embrace of uh, law and economics. Yeah, I think in terms of resolving some of these tensions, uh, thinking about things in rule utilitarian terms with all the sort of deference to philosophers in terms of uh, what problems remain with rule utilitarianism can be useful. Um, the, uh, the, 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 it is an interesting sociological fact that when people are trying to talk with each other in law and economic terms, uh, it's very natural to fall into act utilitarianism. Uh, and for some limited purposes, that's fine, although when we bump up against the limits of law and economics, I think it's appropriate. One avenue that's appropriate is to think in more utilitarian, uh, rule utilitarian terms and to see what um, maybe even non-consequentialist theories have to say and see how, if they can be re reformulated into those terms. So, uh, so as a sort of general strategy for making sure that law and economics uh, doesn't get too off track, I think rule utilitarianism, with all of its, uh, its own limits, is a way for uh, law and economics to be somewhat uh, self-correcting in a way that people can talk with each other. I think a lot of people use utilitarian rhetoric who are not true utilitarians. Some people are, some people aren't. But I think there are more people who talk in those terms than who are really truly utilitarians, even of the rule utilitarian sort. But I don't think that's terribly uh, alarming. I think it, uh, in a way it's a, uh, it's a form of communication. And if we keep that in mind, then some of the uh, alarm about utilitarianism uh, uh, tends to go away. So maybe that's uh, a sort of partial... Uh, endorsement of the idea of rule utilitarianism as a, a solution to some of these dilemmas. Um, I just only have one comment. Um, the trouble with applying um, economic views on the basis of acceptance of rule utilitarianism is, I think, the extreme difficulty in um, providing any sort of empirical basis for arguing that one rule rather than another rule, especially if you're fine-tuning the law, uh, produces better economic effects than the other. It's hard enough to apply utilitarian theory of an act utilitarian sort to empirical evidence. But when you start applying it to rules, I mean, does the postal offer rule maximize wealth better than some alternative rule? I simply don't know how you could begin to get any empirical evidence on that whatsoever. So I think some of this is simply a way of talking about views adopted for really other reasons. 
A great contribution that Henry Smith and, and Tom Merrill, who asked the question earlier, were making in their casebook on property, which just uh, which just came out, uh, and is and is uh, giving the traditional book by Jim Creer and others here at Michigan a run for the money, um, is the, that between ex ante and ex post analysis. So I'm no philosopher and whatever, but when you think about act utilitarianism, I think it's important to think about the time frame in which you're doing your analysis. And Henry made a nice point about the uh, standard nuisance case like Boomer. Uh, do you figure out what you should do after the, the, the factory exists that pollutes and whatever? If you look at it in that time frame, you might come up with a certain rule. But actually, it might be more constructive to think back about when they made the decision uh, where to locate their plant and, and whatever and what rule makes sense then. And uh, so uh, I don't know if that, how well that ambiguity has been worked out in philosophy because I don't, I don't touch the stuff much. Relent on the last question and let you have the last question. Uh, Jason Texa, University of San Francisco. And I wanted to kind of bring this down a notch. Um, I'm not an economic theorist. I really don't understand a lot of the legalese that's kind of come out of this discussion. It seemed kind of abstract to me. What I really want to do is kind of take you out of the role of being law professors for a moment and just kind of ask the question that he asked about 30 minutes ago, which is, is the life of a school teacher worth less than the life of an investment banker if you were sitting on the bench? All three of you. Yeah. Uh, I, I think at times societies make uh, symbolically correctly uh, uh, do things to indicate uh, the equality of people in their society. So we do this when we have one one person, one vote rule. We do this on the right to education or whatever. An interesting example is the 9-11 fund, uh, where there was a great debate about how to give out uh, monies there. And I think the administrator of that fund thought in the end might, it might have been better to give out equal amounts uh, and not take individual differences into account. That's not what they did. Um, uh, but I do think that there are some situations in life where that's symbolically appropriate. Uh, 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 my sense is the tort system, in general, we don't do that uh, very, very often. And in general, I, my, my first take on that is that uh, 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 you would create perverse incentives of various kinds, uh, uh, perhaps among other things, if you, if you did that. So I would have other occasions in social life to uh, make important uh, legally symbolic statements about the equality of people, but that might not be one of them. I find it a very difficult question to answer at all. Decisions of this sort are made every day of the week in the allocation of scarce organs in transplants um, and where, uh, you know, you have, you've only got one liver or whatever it is and you've got about five people, so how you decide between them. So I think the idea that we can escape deciding who's the most valuable um, it's, it's just absurd. We just have to in many situations. Um, and what I think we have great difficulty in having is any sort of overarching theory as to how we should make these decisions. I mean, some of those transplant decisions are not made on assessment of crudely value, but if one person drinks like a fish and the other doesn't, um, you're getting more sort of life out of putting the liver in one person and in another. And more life is generally regarded as better than less life. Though I'm, some of us have doubts about that. But, um, <laughs> uh, but we do have a, a, 
areas in which we do take these decisions and there's no doubt about that at all and we're very uncomfortable with them. Yeah, I, I, I agree with um, uh, both Bob and Brian that uh, it really partly, it partly it depends uh, on which area we're talking about and the, uh, the problem with torts is that um, unlike in some of these other areas, unlike to some extent in uh, organ um, uh, allocation, it's very hard to disguise what we're doing, which we often do. And, and maybe there, it's important that we do disguise what we're doing in some context because the very act of doing it openly is uh, disrespectful of uh, people's equal uh, worth. As far as um, the tort system and lost wages, I, I agree with Bob that uh, there are uh, there are questions that of uh, incentives and so forth that um, impact this, and as long as we can uh, keep in mind that uh, that uh, unequal uh, damages for lost wages and so forth do not, uh, you know, we have to make sure to try to the extent we can not to send the message that this means that people are uh, not of equal worth. Then it's uh, then it's all all right to do that, um, and I think you can tell that all three of us are. Uh, uneasy and precisely when we have to do uh, these things above the board, there is a good question of whether we should even sacrifice efficiency if it really does get to be too symbolically a problem. And no normally in the tort system, it seems to act, uh, act in a way that uh, this is not a flashpoint for uh, for uh, symbolism. But with the 9/11 uh, Commission, uh, that's uh, the 9/11 uh, uh, compensation system. Um, that's not the normal tort system, and so we might have to re-ask re the question. But um, but that is, I think, the, the problem is that uh, in some of these areas, like torts especially, uh, this is an, there's no pillar to hide behind, uh, and so that's why that's why we're asking it. But if it, but we do do make these decisions uh, a lot of the time, and uh, uh, one would hope that um, uh, part of the reason we don't do it. Uh, openly is that uh, we do have these concerns and that the, the making of the decision is not uh, meant to send that message. But when it does, then we uh, and maybe uh, some of these high profile uh, cases uh, do involve that, then we have to do uh, somewhat of a rethink, but probably not in the ordinary case. All right. I would like to uh, take the opportunity now to thank our panelists and then we.